Welcome back to our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid, where we talk to researchers previously funded by Australian Rotary Health about their research findings. I'm Jessica Cooper, and today on episode 14, we'll be talking to Professor Felice Jacker from Deakin University. Professor Jacker is well known in her field for her highly influential research that focuses closely on the links between diet, gut health, and mental and brain health. Australian Rotary Health awarded Felice with an Ian Scott PhD scholarship from 2005 to 2008, which was just the very beginning of her research career. That project, which we will be talking a bit about today, was called The Relationship Between Mood and Anxiety Disorders and Nutrition. Today, Professor Jacker is Director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. She's also founder and president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research and immediate past president of the Australian Alliance for the Prevention of Mental Disorders. More recently, Professor Jacker has published a book in 2019 for adults called Brain Changer and a children's book she worked on with her husband called There's a Zoo in My Poo. That just hit the shelves yesterday on July 28th. So thank you very much, Felice, for um, joining us on today's podcast episode. It must be very exciting to see your new children's book um, out to the public. <laughs> it is. It's great. And it was really fun to do it with my husband because, you know, we've been together for 35 years, but we've never actually worked together on anything before. So this was um, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, a very interesting title. There's a, a zoo in my poo. Uh, could you tell us a bit about what, what this is about? <laughs> So the idea was to um, get the message across, I guess, about the importance of gut health to kids, but also their parents and teachers and carers in a way that was accessible and fun. Um, so we know now and have done for a little while, and of course our knowledge is growing all the time, that the bacteria that live in our gut play a really important role in our health and that what we eat uh, is very important in influencing the health of those bacteria and the things that they do. So for many kids, we know, and this is true for adults as well, if you say, you know, don't eat that, it's not good for you, or do eat this, it's good for you, it doesn't really mean anything. Often for kids, that's just too vague. And for adults, it's around things that may or may not happen off in the future, like a heart attack or cancer or something like that. When you make ideas and information very concrete rather than abstract, it's far easier, for, I think, for people to act on them. When you say that what you eat will have an influence on your gut bacteria within hours and that will translate to an influence on your health, including your mental and brain health, also within a pretty short time frame, then it gives people a far more, um, I don't know, salient uh, reason for, for acting on the, on the information. And, you know, kids love poo and farts and bums and mucus and all those dicky things. So we thought that this was a really good way into it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds, yeah, very creative. And I, I suppose it's good to teach, you know, those, you know, habits about food early on and so that they can develop, you know, good habits later on. So And yeah. kids are really cluey too. If you give them information, they'll act on it themselves. Rather than being told what to do, they'll actually make those choices themselves. And I think that this... You know, they'll be getting messages around healthy eating from school and from all over the place, but this makes it much more concrete, I think. 
Yeah. Oh, lovely. That's exciting. Um, I know, yeah, you have another book as well called Brain Changer, which is aimed more at adults um, to teach them about how diet can help their mental health. Um, I guess what can readers expect if they decide to um, pick up this book? Uh, so that book was written to really bring together all of the research evidence around the links between diet and mental and brain health right across the life course. And um, I wanted to do it in a way that was, again, very accessible, something that you didn't need to be a scientist to, to be able to read and understand. And it's got some, you know, just very basic, simple, accessible tips around how to make improvements to your diet without it costing a lot or being really difficult or onerous. So the book brings together everything we know thus far. At the end of every chapter, I've done a little bit of a dot point summary so people can just, you know, reinforce those ideas or knowledge. And then at the, the back, there's some simple recipes and a, a sort of a pantry overhaul if you, you know, you were so inclined. And um, it's written in a way, I hope, that is accessible and kind of entertaining. And, you know, the publishers asked me to do it from my point of view and put in a lot of my personal story. So I did that. Um, so if people want the evidence-based information on this topic, I think it's a really good resource because, of course, there's a lot of people out in internet land, uh, particularly in the US, who are promoting non-evidence-based messages around diet and health in general, but also in mental health. So for me, having an evidence-based resource is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's so much information out there. So I guess, yeah, it's good to research background, um, you know, to back it up. So, yeah, no, that sounds like a, a great book for people to, to read. And I, I yep. know, like, you've certainly come a long way in your research career since um, you first started your PhD back in 2005. Um, but I'm yes. sure that our, our listeners would really like to hear about that first project that started it all on the relationship between mood and anxiety disorders and nutrition. Um, so what led you towards doing a project like this? Well, I came into psychiatric research completely accidentally. You know, my first degree was in fine art. I was a, an artist. And then I went back to uni to study psychology. And as I was going through, I was really interested in, I guess, more the sort of the medicine neuroscience aspects of psychology and also the statistics and the, the research methods. So when I was doing that, I sought uh, opportunities to do kind of like a, an internship, I guess, uh, with a research group and um that then led on to me doing my honours with them, looking at um, the links between diet and, uh, sorry, um, depression and osteoporosis. So really nothing to do with diet. But as I was doing that, I was starting to understand that in this wider field of psychiatric research, there'd been really nothing much done at all looking at diet and mental health, particularly all of diet. You know, there've been a few little studies looking at, you know, this individual nutrient or maybe a supplement or something like that, but it's not the same as understanding how what we eat every day might influence our mental and brain health. Now, around this time, this was at the beginning of the 2000s, there was a lot of new information coming out of this field called psychoneuroimmunology, which is basically showing that the immune system is involved in, well, depression in particular, in a bi-directional way so that, you know, when you're depressed, you may have more of this sort of low-grade immune dysfunction and that in turn may predispose to more depression. And so this is starting to get away from this idea that all mental illnesses just happen in the brain and starting to regard uh, mental health and particularly depression at that point as you know, it's much more of a whole body disorder. It involves a lot of different systems. 
and the stress response system, which of course is very closely linked to our gut. This is before we understood about the bacteria that live in the gut. Mm. Uh, and then as well as that, there was a whole lot of really interesting neuroscience coming out of uh, the US looking at the influence of diet on this part of the brain called the hippocampus. Hippocampus is the key region in the brain, it's the only region in the brain that actually grows new neurons throughout life. It seems to be very important for learning and memory, but also for mental health. And it tends to, to grow and shrink in regard, uh, relation to different sorts of things that we're exposed to. And that includes our diets. Uh, and also if we're depressed, people with, who are depressed often have smaller hippocampus. So the fact that diet could really influence this key part of the brain was also of interest. So for that reason, um, I proposed that I would like to do my PhD looking at overall dietary patterns and how they related to psychiatric disorders. And at that time, I was embedded within a large epidemiological study. And we were just about to start doing psychiatric assessments on these people. So this was a large sample of women from right across the community, very representative of the Australian population, from age 20 right through into their 90s. So a fantastic population in which to do research. And we'd had very good data from them on their dietary behaviours and other lifestyle behaviours and things like their education and income and how healthy they were and all these types of other things. Uh, and we were just about to do these psychiatric assessments. So I proposed the idea of doing this sort of looking at this association, which, you know, there was a bit of eye rolling and a bit of like, why would you want to look at that? Uh, but I got the go ahead and that's what I set out to do. And of course, at the end of the, the four odd years, um, I had some very, very interesting findings and they ended up being published on the front cover of the American Journal of Psychiatry. So that was great. As an early career researcher, that gave me a real boost and allowed me to then go on and work with a lot of different groups around the world to test this hypothesis in lots of different countries and cultures and across, across age groups as well. And that formed the basis of, of the sort of what we call nutritional psychiatry and then from there, I went on to do um, a, an intervention study, which has become very influential, actually, because it was the first randomised controlled trial to uh, look at whether if we take people who have clinical depression and we help them to improve their diet, does it actually have an impact on their depression? And yes, it does. It has a substantial impact. And it was very cost effective to do this. And there was a lot of findings that came out of that study. So... I guess none of it would have happened, though, if it wasn't for Australian Rotary Health initially investing in me via the scholarship that I got to do my PhD. And that was incredibly helpful. And not only that, of course, Rotary support me to, you know, go around and talk to lots of different clubs and Rotarians. And that gives you practice at, at you know, talking about science and research for a lay audience and opportunities to meet lots of people. So, it had a big impact on my career and um, I, you know, I don't know that it would have happened without that. So, you know, I'm eternally grateful to Rotary. <laughs> yeah, it was always really great to hear how, you know, those beginnings just, you know, snowball and, you know, become something much bigger. And, you know, it seems that you've found lots of research since then, um, you know, on, on the relationship between nutrition and, and our mental health. So, yeah, that, that's wonderful. I guess in that first project, um, what were the um, exact research findings at, at the time? 
Uh, so we found, as predicted, that women who had an overall healthier diet were less likely to have these clinical depressive uh, and anxiety disorders, whereas women whose diets were less healthy with more of the junk and processed food seemed to be more likely. That's it in a nutshell, uh, you know, with some subtleties. And these relationships were independent of these other factors that we think are important. So, you know, people's education, their income, other health behaviours such as exercise, their um, body weight and these now of course we've, we've tested this hypothesis and many others have joined us in this in many different countries and cultures and we see these same very consistent relationships and what we also see is there's prospectively is there's a link so the healthier your diet the less likely you are to develop depression over time and again seemingly independent of these other factors so the fact that this is true right across the life course is really important. The fact that this is true in lots of different countries and cultures tells us something really fundamental about nutrition and it doesn't have to be a particular type of diet. It just has to be the basics really, which is more, you know, vegetables, fruits, whole grain cereals, legumes, um, fish, these foods that we know are healthy for us uh, and avoiding the, the bad stuff, the stuff that we know is not good for us, the, the Kentucky Fried and Maccas and the, the um, things that come in packets with lots and lots of additives. So both are important, getting enough of the good stuff and not having much at all of the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it's, um, it's so important just, yeah, like looking at, at what we eat and how it can affect so many aspects of our life. It's, yeah, it's very important research. And, you know, it sounds like it has been, you know, those findings have been huge. And, and since then, it's led on to further research about how diet can help mental health. And, and you also mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Um, I guess people who are listening to this podcast who might be struggling with their own mental health at the moment, would you recommend um, anything in terms of changing their diet? Yeah, there's lots of information on our Food and Mood Centre website if people want more info. Um, but, you know, it's actually fairly straightforward. It's around making those small changes and improvements to your diet that have a big benefit. So one of the key things, and I think, again, getting back to making it really concrete, is you want to feed your gut. And that means lots and lots of fibre, foods that have lots of fibre. So that's your vegetables, your fruits, your whole grain cereals, like, you know, porridge, for example, brown rice, these types of things. Um, legumes are really important because they're such a, a great source of fiber it's very hard to hit your fiber goals without having you know chickpeas lentils beans these sorts of things i tend to eat them probably every day um, and you know uh, make sure you get a couple of serves of oily fish a week they're using extra virgin olive oil so you're having these healthy fats in your diet and again, avoiding the things that have got the added emulsifiers and sugars and artificial sugars and salts and, and trans fats, because these things we know really not good for brain, body, gut or anything else. Um, so that sometimes people can find that difficult if they're going from a really Western diet straight to that. It's, it can be challenging. And this is where what we've found with the research is that Studies where a dietitian is employed, some are a nutrition professional, they seem to get better outcomes. And that's because they know not just what to eat or what not to eat, but how to get there, how to make it achievable, affordable, all of those sorts of things. So um, allowing people with mental illnesses access or supporting them to access dietitians is one of the, the key strategies that we're working on through a number of different ways. Um, what we showed with our SMILES trial was that 
there was an average cost saving of about $3,000 per participant for those who got the dietary support compared to the, the control condition, which was social support. And that was from people needing to see other health practitioners less often and losing less time out of their daily roles. So this is saying that taking a, you know, um, an approach where you help people to improve their nutrition, it has a flow on benefit to every aspect of their life. And the other thing we noted too was that uh, we did a detailed cost analysis and the diet that we were advocating was actually less expensive than the diet people were eating when they came into the study with lots of processed foods because, you know, of course you can go out and have some very expensive organic or fresh piece of fish or what have you and that's expensive. But if you do what I do and have kind of what I call a peasant diet, so lots of dried beans or tin beans and legumes, tin fish, you can use frozen veggies, all of these things are great and not terribly expensive so mm. it's about making it simple and accessible but really importantly the conversation and where I really focus my I guess communication in public forums is around the need to make sure that our food environment is better because big food which is bigger than the you know tobacco industry or probably bigger than almost any industry in the world has changed our food environment such that uh, these ultra-processed foods are the cheapest, the most heavily marketed, the most widely available, and therefore the most socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. As a result, unhealthy diets now are the leading cause of illness and early death around the world. And without food policy and like, you know, whether you call it an obesity prevention policy or what have you, but policies from the government level to change the food environment it's not about individual choice. You shouldn't be putting the emphasis back on the individual because there's many structural reasons why people struggle to make healthy food choices. So it has to come from the top down. But of course, giving people the information where they can make those changes if they're able is also really helpful and important. And so at the moment, are you working on those big you know, policy changes to, to try and you know, get that to... Yeah, we have a huge amount of uh, stuff underway, which it will take me an hour to tell you all about. We've got, well, more, well more than 20 studies underway at the Food and Mood Centre, and they span everything from laboratory work uh, right the way through to these large-scale population-level interventions. But we're also doing a lot of knowledge translation. So, for example, we, we designed a free online course on nutritional psychiatry and we've run that twice since November last year. And so far, it's enrolled more than 40,000 people from more than 160 countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Not designed for health professionals, designed for the general public. But now we're working with these big bodies, such as the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, for example, to design accredited training for practitioners so we can start to upskill people to uh, help their patients. So that's one thing. But also uh, being involved with the policy making processes and and the reports and things like that to try and have an influence and of course being public advocates and we work closely with globe obesity and a lot of the big obesity um, prevention groups because they're obviously wanting to do the same thing as us uh, however we always emphasize that really it's not about obesity per se because we see that this link between nutrition and mental health exists over and above anything to do with body weight so you don't have to be thinking, well, I can't benefit from changes to my diet because I'm overweight or obese. The healthy diet is what's important. Forget about the body weight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, oh, that's that's so important. And, yeah, it's really, it's really great to hear, like, you know, from the beginning with that PhD, how far that you've come. And I'm sure our Rotarians will really love to hear all that. 
I guess um, if, if any Rotarians are thinking of donating to mental health research, um, why would you say it's important to continue supporting this kind of research? Well, critically, um, the Australian government has um, really made it very, very hard to get good research funding for a long time now. So um, the amount of uh, money available for research has gone down and down and down. We now have more money going into the Medical Research Future Fund, but that's really directed at particular types of studies that are really not always um, useful for mental health research. So it's very hard for researchers such as myself to get funding through these large uh, government bodies, funding bodies. So Australian Rotary Health play a critical role in mental health research in Australia, absolutely critical. Without them, there are so many things that we wouldn't know. And if you think about my field in particular, nutritional psychiatry, just as an example, you know, the work we do is so influential that now it's, you know, just in the last couple of months, we've had major pieces published in Time magazine, in the Oprah magazine, you know, everything from the New York Times to the cover of the Scientific American Mind, etc. This is research that's had a really substantial global impact. That wouldn't have happened without that investment from Australian Rotary Health. And that's similar across all sorts of research that happens in Australia. If it wasn't for the Rotarian support, it just simply wouldn't happen. So it's really critical. Um, and I, you know, I know all of the mental health researchers with whom I work would say the same thing, that they are incredibly indebted to Australian Rotary Health for the support, because otherwise we would probably, many of us would be overseas doing this research in other countries. Well, it's been really great to talk to you today on our podcast, Felice. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, did you have anything else to add just before we wrap up today? No, just again to say my immense gratitude to Australian Rotary Health and to all the Rotarians that are supporting this important work. It's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I hope that my relationship with Rotary continues for the rest of my career. Yeah. And I know that we've got quite a few students uh, supported by Australian Rotary Health Scholarships within our group as well. So it continues to be enormously helpful and uh, influential. Yeah. Well, thanks again. That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Well, that was the 14th episode of our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid. It's always so inspiring to hear what researchers in Australia are doing to make a difference to mental health and how they are helping us on our mission to lift the lid on mental illness. If you can, please continue supporting important mental health research like Professor Jackers by donating on the Australian Rotary Health website. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.